Hello and welcome to Late to It. I'm Naomi Frisby. I'm Kirsty Do. And this is the podcast about reading books at the right time. Kirsty, what have you been reading this week? I have been reading How We Fight for Our Lives by Saeed Jones, which I think you've read, haven't you? I haven't read it. I want to read it. I follow him on Twitter. I'm just going to point out to people that he is at the ferocity on Twitter and he's brilliant. So that's my like, there's, there's only like three people I like on Twitter and he's one of them. So <laughs> I to follow him. High praise. Um, <laughs> but I recommend the book to you in that case. I just assumed you'd read it because I uh, I didn't follow him until I'd read it. <laughs> so uh, I, I think you just assume I've read everything, Kirsty, which is I not. I do. I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm always stunned when you haven't read something. Um, it is his memoir of uh, growing up black and gay in the South in America. Um, and it is, it's, it's a really lovely mixture of very, very funny in places, really funny in places. But he's, what he's great at is just all of a sudden just like pulling the rug out from under you and will say something completely heartbreaking and you're just like oh god um i absolutely loved it and the, the thing that kind of comes out throughout it is just him trying to find himself essentially trying to make sense of his identity trying to have have pride in that identity as well you know he talks about how you know, he, he talks right back from his childhood through to his sort of teenage years and his kind of first sexual experiences and being unsure and not being able to come out to his mum and his grandmother and having quite a kind of, not difficult relationship with them, but certainly there's some tension there, although he adores both. Um, but then he, so when he, when he gets to college, he sort of goes the other way and he talks about how he kind of decided on this sort of ra- you know radicalism of a lack of shame like he would just you know he'd, he'd do all sorts with all sorts of people and then tell everyone about it and he just decided that it was a radical act not to feel shame about anything but of course actually he said he ended up he did because then he became that friend who did all the things you know um and it was always that kind of oh what the fuck has Saeed done now kind of thing and it kind of actually realized that he didn't like that's not what he wanted for himself either. Um, he goes, you know, there's quite a lot of sex in it. He talks about kind of encounters he had with white men who on the face of it seemed like a perfectly standard hookup, as it were. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of everything would start sort of fetishizing him as a black man. And just the sort of the shock of it in the moment, but then sort of watching himself going, well, you know, if this is what you want, right, fine, I'll be that person um and he says at one point you know if america is going to hate me for being black and gay i thought i might as well make a weapon of myself oh yeah you're right exactly um and it's sort of you know it's it's just him trying to work through all of that and then towards the end of the book when his mum becomes ill and later when his mum dies and it's he just he just puts it all on the page you know and then one minute you'll be sort of laughing at something he said and then he'll just talk about the sort of hopelessness of trying to employ masks you know he says how many however many masks we employ we can't control how people see us Mm. like every so often i'm just like i need to write this down it's only these (laughs) post-it notes all over my house 
Um, he also talks about an incredibly traumatic experience with um, a man who turned violent and to try and kill him. Um, and the sort of difficulty in writing, you know, wanting to sort of reclaim the experience by writing about it and sort of saying, you know, I just I tried to leash him to the page and I couldn't. He kept sort of getting off the page and sort of doing his own thing. So there's, you know, that talking about him as a writer as well as a poet. I mean, I think he's predominantly a poet, but this is his memoir. Anyway, it's I've sort of devoured it over the last couple of days and I it's astonishing. It's one of the best things I've read this year, I would say. Wow quite yeah. like go and read it I, I genuinely thought you'd read it so I just I know we had this conversation just before that you don't like people telling you you should do something so I won't <laughs> do that but I will I will strongly recommend that uh you read it because I think you'll I think you'll really like it I mean to be fair you could tell me that I should read it because you had me at lots of sex and then it went <laughs> up from there so <laughs> just adding to my reputation um yeah, it sounds amazing. And I am absolutely that person who writes stuff on um, post-it notes and sticks it around the house. Because I was thinking about when you were talking about it earlier, we, you mentioned it to me earlier in the week and said you were listening to it. And I was like, oh, I might restart my audiobook um, account. But actually, now you said that about wanting to write stuff down, I'm going to get a proper, a proper copy, a physical copy of it. Yeah, so I, I listen to it on audio, but and I quite like listening to non-fiction and memoirs, particularly on audio book and essays and stuff. Um, but that is one where I think I am actually going to go out and buy a paper copy as well, because I kept sort of like winding it back, going, what was that? Well, let me write this down. Um, but I that feels like a book I want to keep. And I, I don't know, something about audio, and I love audio books, I listen to quite a lot, but there's something about them that somehow feels impermanent. I feel sometimes that same way about ebooks. I'm quite happy reading on an e-reader, but if there's something that I really love, I will go out and buy the physical copy so I can keep it on the shelf. I think we're in shelf territory for this one. Yeah, I I do the same. I do the same. So, um, like I read Luster earlier this year on ebook, and I'm definitely buying a copy of that, partly because that was one of the books that I started writing quotes out of and sticking them on the wall. <laughs> and, um, well, so I really the thing that I really like about audiobooks is listening to people read their own work, yeah. especially like celebrity. I am mad for like celebrity memoirs. Elton John. Well, in fact, actually, Elton John doesn't read his. Tara Negerton reads most of it, but you know, same difference. <laughs> but yeah, I really like that. Like Tori Amos reading her own was amazing, and I love that. Like that's that's a thing now. I really like yeah. that. But yeah, like like you've just said if it's yeah it's him that reads it as well and uh, so there is that sort of you can you can hear it in his voice as well it kind of gives you that extra layer I suppose of experience of hearing him read that my other I mean uh just in terms of celebrities reading their own audiobooks my fail safe recommendation um is not my father's son by Alan Cumming which is just astonishingly good um and he reads it and it's one of my favourite audio books that I've ever listened to. It's just brilliant. It's also just a great book as well. I'll put it on the list for when I'm listening to audio books. Do. I recommend it. What have you been reading? Um, I've been reading this book that, like, you'll never have heard of. Nobody on this book, you know, listens to this one. <laughs> it's a lie. I'm late to it. Um, the Mermaid of Black Conch by Monique Ruffey, which has won every bleeding prize going by now, I think. Um, and I just want to point out that I read the Pea Paltry um, edition 
which um, has since been bought out by Vintage. And I am going to say, I hope they paid loads of money for it because, <laughs> because I've got this big thing about like small publishers who were doing the work and, and you know, publishing books that the big ones won't touch that then win loads of stuff and then they buy it out. So yeah, so I hope they got loads of money for it. Anyway, <laughs> I really like uh, Rafi's work. I've been a fan for quite a long time. Um, yeah, but came late to this just because, you know, sometimes stuff, Sometimes stuff just ends up on shelf because you're reading other things, aren't you? Because you're time-sensitive things or whatever. But anyway, so I picked it up last week. And it's about a mermaid um, who is captured by some Americans and they try to put her in a... They're going to keep her, basically. Um, and she um, is escaped, <laughs> let loose, taken out. Um by this man called David who lives on um, Black Con. She's a fisherman, so he knows about the mermaid because he's met her and they've kind of been like, um, it suggests they've been flirting while he's been out on his boat, although she can't speak at that point. Um, so he, yeah, he breaks her out and takes her back to his house and hides her. Um, and she starts, he puts her in the bath with loads of salt, which reminded me of um, The Shape of Water, when she takes the guy home and puts him in the bath with a lot of salt. Um, tip, if you ever if you ever kidnap a mermaid or a merman, salt. <laughs> um, so yeah, and then she starts to turn back into a woman because she's had a curse put on her by other women who didn't like how beautiful she was like years before. Um, and there's, um, there, there aren't actually that many characters in it, but there is, um, um, there's a friend of David's who's called Miss Rain um, and she has a son called Reggie who is deaf and he uh, becomes friends with a mermaid and he teaches her sign language and David teaches her um, English, Caribbean English and uh, what else happens? Yeah, they ended up they end up in a relationship together but it's not a happy ending, that's kind of the middle of the book. But yeah, I really loved it. She, her bits are written in like verse, in free verse and there's bits of his diary and also she um it reads as though she's telling the other parts in prose but like much later after it happens so there's this kind of hint that maybe she's still knocking about even if like that's not quite where it ends but yeah and it's uh it's also about i mean it's about misogyny and it's about power and it's about corruption and it's about colonialism but like done quite lightly i think you know in terms of like it's not spelled out, there's bits of it where it's clear that, you know, Rafi's talking about colonialism, but also I think there's a kind of, the sense that it gave to me was that it's a bit of a kind of fable almost, that you could read it, you could read it in different ways. You could sit there in your A-level class and, you know, give it a Marxist reading or a feminist reading <laughs> or an imperialist reading. But yeah, I'm, I'm saying that flippantly, but I mean, that is like, you know, a compliment that it had all this, stuff in it's, it, I always think a book's really good if I want to go back to it and I would quite happily go back and read it again and work out what I'd not picked up first time round. I think so yeah, yeah my recommendation I've also got the pupal tree um edition sitting on my shelf and I also haven't got to it because because time um reading for a podcast um reading for work uh <laughs> but I, I want to get to it um really soon because I have not read all of her work I the only actually the only one I've read so far is uh, the white woman on the green bicycle which was mm -hmm. shortlisted or longlisted for the women's prize it might have still been the orange 
maybe it was the bait i don't know i've lost track of who sponsored it when um i think around 2010 something like that it's there or thereabouts um and i absolutely loved that i thought it was an outstandingly good book uh, but i've not read any of her books since so i shall rectify that I've done the other way that although I own, so I bought both the one on the green bicycle and the previous novel that I can't remember what it's called, even though there's a sunflower on the cover and I think it's got something to do with sunflower in the title. Sundog. Oh, that might be right. Yeah. So I bought that when it came out and I still have not read it. (laughs) No other woman on the green bicycle, but House of Ashes um, is one of my all time favorites, which I think came out. Oh God. 2015 2016 I definitely reviewed it on the blog when it came out um and the tryst which was published after that um by Dodo Inc which is absolutely filthy it's completely full of sex so of course it's on my list of <laughs> books that I like um no it's really brilliant it's like a retelling of the Lilith Smith myth and it's really really good apart from don't do what I did which was read it on a train, which prompted some random man to come up and make a comment because the cover's kind of like quite sexual. So yeah, so uh, decided to come uh, up. Oh, I don't like random men on trains. No, me neither. So that was a joy. Don't read it in public. I think you're just like captive and they think they can come and say whatever to you. But anyway, that's my little tip. Don't read it on the train, but do read it because it's very good. Yeah, I do. I want to. I, I remember the tryst coming out. In fact, I think I read about it on your blog actually um and i remember thinking i want to read that and then promptly did nothing about it so i will get there eventually late wait to it <laughs> speaking of which yes what are we late to this week we are late to spill simmer falter wither by sarah baum i hope i pronounced that correctly and the other one is Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melkor, which was translated by Sophie Hughes. I realise that I've forgotten to say who the publicists are, so spell simmer. Not the publicist, the publishers. <laughs> yes, we need the publicist. We need more of that. Publicist. I want to know who the publicist was. Well, the publicist for Hurricane Season was Claire Bergen. I don't know who the publicist was for the windmill one. Um, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> What was I going to say? So, Spill Simmer was published by William Heinemann, although it was previously published by Tramp Press in Ireland and then um, brought out over here. And Hurricane Season is another Fitzcarraldo who I'm going to be dropping an email about sponsorship to, seeing as we've done three of their books now. <laughs> <laughs> big fan of Fitzcarraldo, though. They yeah, big deal. fans of Fitzcarraldo. I mean, I, th- I think we're up, this must be the fifth or sixth between books we've actually talked about and books that we've mentioned over two series that we happen to have been reading um Fitzcarraldo knocking it out of the park they published some good stuff yeah. so we're going to start with Spill Summer Fault with her um which is about one man and his dog <laughs> that's my succinct summary no it's about this man called Ray who's 57 he has just bought a dog who's called one eye because he's got one eye um is a bit vicious the, he lives on his own. His dad, father's dead. He lives in the house that he lived in with his dad. Um, yep. Yeah, what happens? Oh, yeah. The dog attacks another dog, and eventually he decides that they need to go off on a road trip. So they go on a road trip, and then they come back. Is that first summary, Kirsty. That's pretty much. That's pretty much what happens. 
Um, it's a funny old book, this one. I was really looking forward to this one. This is, um, in fact, I may have suggested both of these. I can't remember how it worked out with our mythical spreadsheet. Uh, I but think, I know I suggested Phil Simmer. I think you did suggest both of them, but also I had both of them and wanted to read them. So I'm not going to like dump all the blame on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've had this on my shelf for ages for so long um and uh so this seemed like a very good opportunity to read it 2015 it came out um i there were bits i really really liked about it um i think that the stuff where he talks about his dad is incredibly well done i think there are moments in the writing that are really really beautiful i mean it's all told from a kind of second person perspective he's ray is talking to his dog with it's one mm. eye um throughout so essentially the reader is put in the position of one eye he's referred to as you all the way through um and there are moments of just this kind of extraordinary inner life that is not necessarily reflective of what is on the outside but i've got to say there are some quite dull bits as well <laughs> so sorry i feel really bad saying that but there's there there there's a lot there that i felt perhaps didn't need to be yeah like you i thought i've got some bits written down that i really liked odd moments that i thought were really nice my i think my initial problem with it was that i didn't like the writer it's not just not the st style of writing that i connect with particularly because i tend to prefer as will become obvious when we get on to hurricane season particularly um quite Oh, what word do I want? Like stripped, I was going to say snappy, but like, you know, stripped back, clean, whereas Spilsom is much more lyrical. And some people will love it. I know they will. But I just found it slowed everything down. And I felt actually after I'd finished it and I was thinking about it more, that it didn't really suit the story that was being told or I didn't think the two things connected. Um, yeah, for me, it just, it's, it seemed to put a distance in it like between me and the story that I thought didn't need to be there. And it almost like, there's some deep, deep trauma in the story that comes mm. in the last 20 pages. And I'm like, why is it in the last 20 pages? This is the bit I'm interested in. But yeah, maybe yeah. that's me. Maybe I was the wrong reader for the book because it comes with lots of, um, lots and lots of great quotes from people who I admire, so. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's been shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award, winner of the Jeffrey Faber Memorial Prize. We've got quotes from Anne Enright, um, you know, loads of newspaper quotes. We've got Mary Costello. Yes. Given a quote, who I know you're a fan of, Ema yes. McBride. You know, um, so there are plenty, plenty, plenty of people who absolutely love this book and delighted for them. Do you know what I mean? There are lots <laughs> of people who love this. Um, and who am I to argue with Anne Enright? Uh, I mean, on the one hand, the writing is very meandering and mm. that does fit in the sense of you've got this quite directionless man, mm. um, literally at times. This man has spent his entire life in the one house. He has never gone to school, we find out. He has barely left the house. We find out that so his dad has died um some time previously we have found out that until that point he had never made a phone call he had never answered the doorbell this is a man who has 
barely functioned in society, essentially, um, which is not to put a value judgment on it at all. But he had, you know, he hasn't. He doesn't have a job. He's never had a job. He's never been to school. He just lives his life in his house. He goes to the shop. He buys the same things. He has the same conversation with the guy behind the till. He goes home. And then at one point, for reasons that aren't revealed until right at the end of the book, he decides one day that he needs to get a dog. Um, and uh, that's how One Eye comes along. And at this point, you know, the, the, this, the, the books split into four sections called Spill, Summer, Falter and Wither. And Falter is the section where him and One Eye are on a road trip after um, One Eye attacks another dog and out of fear that the dog's going to be taken off them, they sort of go on the road. And they're just, they're not, they're not going anywhere. He doesn't even know by the end of it how long they've been away. Nine weeks, 10 weeks, 11 weeks, no, no clue, no destination. They're just driving round and around and around. So in a sense, that meandering, I think, is, is very appropriate. But I don't know. It, I didn't feel it's a particularly satisfying thing as a reader. Like I can maybe see what she was doing, but I'm, I, I think I'm the same as you. I'm, I'm clearly I'm not the right reader for the book. I don't think it's the book's fault, but I, it, it felt it. I'm, you're a writer. Maybe you'll understand what I mean by this. It felt like more of a book for a writer than for a reader at times. Ooh. Mm. I don't mean that bitchily. I really don't. Yeah, yeah, because there are people who are writers, writers, I think. I think that's yeah. right. I'm trying to think of, I've described people as writers, writers before. I'm trying to think who, who I was talking about and I can't remember. But, um, yeah, a certain type. I, do you know what I, I was thinking about as I read it? There was an essay a few years ago now by Claire Vane, Watts, Watkins, Claire Vane Watkins where she wrote about that she wrote her first short story collection with a very particular reader in mind and she was thinking about she wanted to write the sort of literary fiction that gets prizes, that's, you know, held up. That's, that's very much now, people will pull me up on this and so I'm going to try and explain myself, but I refer to it as literary white man fiction, right? <laughs> And I'm not talking about David Foster Wallace this time. I am talking about... <laughs> my next comment. <laughs> no, not David Foster Wallace. But like Colm Tobin or uh, John Banville, you know, the people who win the booker or who previously have won the booker. That sort of writing that the literary establishment like held, holds up. And it felt to me a bit like she'd internalised all that and that's what she was writing. And, and I think that's, I mean, this is partly on me because I partly have, a, part of what I have a problem with is women writers, especially young female writers, writing from a male perspective. And I've done it. When I was doing my MA, I pulled myself up on it eventually going, what are you doing? And I'd internalised so much. And I'm not saying that's what she's done, but that's how I ended up reading it. Cause I was like, I don't care about 57 year old Ray. I'm sorry. I don't, I'm like, why? <laughs> and I know like this, I think it was partly because I, this, it just wasn't the book that I wanted. This is all on me because I felt like there was so much more could have been done with toxic masculinity, abusive parents. Like there was so much in there that could have been explored that wasn't. And I kind of got, when I got towards the end, I felt like, it should have started about 20 pages from the end. That's where, like, for me, I mean, there's a big reveal at that point. 
But there was a point mm. where I don't know. It wasn't that I wanted more to happen. It felt like there were loads of backstory before you got to things happening. And, and yeah, I just structured it differently, but like I didn't write it. So. <laughs> I felt like I wanted that last section to be a short story or a novella. Mm. I kind of wanted that as a standalone. I, it's That was by far my favourite bit of the book. Um, you know, when he starts to... But you get, you know, you know, you're aware fairly early on that there must have been some sort of trauma because why did he never go to school? Mm. Why does he keep saying that he's scared of children? Um, I mean, absolutely, like, above all else, you know, children are the most terrifying thing. He obsesses over this particular boy that he used to see walking to school that had calipers. Mm. Um, so, you know, you're, I felt myself waiting for more information about that to be drip fed. And I don't know whether I just wasn't, it could have absolutely been on me. I could have missed stuff, but I've kept waiting for more to be revealed about that sort of throughout the book. Whereas I felt like some, some seeds were sown in the first section, the second and the third section didn't, that felt like the bit to move them along to get to the road trip. And then the third section was the road trip. There was a point right at the end of that road trip where Ray as a character suddenly becomes much more active mm. because of one particular thing that happens, which I won't, which I won't spoil. Um, but from that point on, I was kind of back with her. I was, I was like, okay, now, well, now we're here. But I just, I could have done without that sort of basically two sections of the book where it felt like exposition in a way. Mm. sort of in a kind of meand very meandering sort of way and then the real action of the novel took place in the last 70 pages yeah kind of and I, I I kind of feel a bit like do you know what there's there's nothing wrong with writing a meandering novel if that's what you want to write that is absolutely fine but yeah again I'm back to on me I'm not I'm not interested I just didn't click with it I just didn't click with it but there were bits mm. where so I'm going to redeem myself slightly because <laughs> like when I went back to look through it before when I was making notes for us before we, you know because like contrary to what it might sound like we do plan this <laughs> like <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've turned over quite a lot of pages and there was a bit near the because I think there were all these bits where I was trying to latch up and maybe, maybe this is to do with the way that um, lots of novels are written and the way that if you have done a creative writing course, you are taught to, to like think about novels, that I kept thinking, oh, that's a clue for this and that's a clue for this. And I picked up all this stuff and it didn't go anywhere. And it, maybe that's my frustration as a reader that I have learned to read in a particular way and was like, yes, I'm waiting for this to come back and it didn't. But anyway, right near the beginning, he says, everything is filled with stories. An old woman neighbour told me once, the same old woman neighbour, as it happens, who taught me to sew. This is when I was extremely little, too little to understand that most things don't mean exactly what they seem. That meaning is a flighty thing. Because of what she said, I split the seam down the back of my favourite teddy, Mr Buddy, with a serrated kitchen knife. I was searching for stories, commanding words to tumble out and configure into horizontal lines like the ones inside my storybooks. Instead, I found Mr Buddy was all stuffed with minute clouds. I shoved the clouds in again and punched him down the back of the washing machine that my, so that my father wouldn't see what I'd done. 
And even though he never did for years and years, I could hear Mr. Buddy's button nose clacking against the wall whenever the washing machine went into a spin. The machine doesn't work anymore, but it sits in the same spot in the kitchen. And I suppose Mr. Buddy is back there still. And I love that bit. And it feels almost like a microcosm of the whole story. Mm. But like there are bits that I think are like really shine. But then, yeah, and other bits that I just thought, God, have they not got anywhere yet? <laughs> I do. I do love what she says at one point or what she has Ray say at one point about when they're on the road and they become these creatures of possibility. Like he's, he's, lived, he's lived his 57 years in the same place, doing the same thing day in, day out, almost literally. And there's this point at which he does become, as I said, like a more active character in his own life almost. And he, you know, he does talk about this, they're creatures of possibility, which I just thought was a lovely, a lovely phrase. And it's, that's when the book got interesting for me. I wanted more, I, I, I totally see what she was doing in the sense of, there was this sort of monotony for this this sort of pivoting pivot point pivoting point that's not the phrase um there's this sort of monotony before this this point of change um but i maybe a little bit too much of the monotony <laughs> yeah i agree but also i also picked up on that phrase and i thought it was the point wasn't it when they when they set off in the car it's the point I think when he's starting to become free of his dad because he says like he didn't learn to drive until he was in his 40s and the reason he learned to drive was because his dad had got gout and he couldn't drive anymore so he needed a chauffeur basically so he learns to drive when he's in his 40s and this is the first time really that he's been out in the car on his own so it's that sense of there is that sense of possibility that they can that you know something's going to change and then it does it's very slow which of course like it would be I've had problems with novels before where you know People, I'm not going to mention it because people love it, but I will say, like, people have come out of psychiatric hospitals and then all of a sudden they're fine and everything they've adjusted, like, in no time at all. And and obviously that's not going to happen, but it doesn't necessarily make for interesting reading, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think there's something... We sort of had this conversation slightly via text. Um, quiet novels. Mm. Uh, and this is... A quiet novel in the sense of nothing particularly happens for a good swathe of it which I don't think is necessarily to its benefit um, but I don't think that all quiet novels are necessarily boring mm. um, I think it's, it's 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 I suppose it's how you define the action that takes place in it yeah and I think when we were having that conversation two things came up particularly didn't they Elizabeth Strout my name yeah. is Barton, um, and uh, I mentioned Mary Costello's Academy Street, which I love. And I'm just going to say to like anybody who's listening, because I've already told you, but anybody who's listening, like search it out if you like, even if you don't like quite novels, if you are, because it was one of the things I was comparing it to, because both of those books we've just mentioned are about women. Mm. And in I, what I think is different in terms of them is Lucy Barton has this whole interior journey. Like mm. it's, it's a character study like Spill Simmeries, but it has an interior journey. And she is, you know, I think all the stuff about a childhood comes in much earlier and she's working through all that stuff while her mum's in, in the hospital bed. In Academy Street, um, 
the woman in it, her mum dies when she's very young and she, she lives on a farm somewhere in rural Ireland. I can't remember where because it's quite a long time since I read it. But she goes to America and becomes a nurse. And there's just there's a moment that I'm not going to spoil, but there's a moment of revelation towards the end, which is gutting, absolutely mm. gutting when you find out like how I suppose smaller life's been like much like smaller than you think it has. But I think with that as well, it's there's still that like development. She she grows older. She's she you know, she goes to America and she lives on her own, but things happen. <laughs> and and I think it's yeah, I think it's to do with I think it's to do with interiority and I didn't think even though this is narrated to the dog and we're almost onlookers I didn't think there was that much of a progress for him like he's just starting it at the end he's just starting it because he's not really come to terms with what his dad did to him and what effects that's had and what happens next I mean he could have sat in the house for me he could have sat in the house for the whole book if there was some pro like internal progress or yeah I don't think yeah that. no I completely agree with that um I've not read Mary Costello but I will um I you've recommended her to me I will I will read her but I, I agree with them um, Lucy Barton I I really loved that book um but it is although not sort of physically nothing much happens there's still that as you say that kind of in that interiority that is that a word yeah. uh, that you know really works she's just an incredible writer um yeah. I mean the, the key to it normally I mean I say normally like not all novels obviously not all novels are like this but there's got to be some tension aren't there somewhere and I just felt there were parts of this where the, the it didn't seem like there was any threat to me even though we like thought there was and I don't need necessarily mean that means to be a massive threat there's got to be something that makes you as a reader feel like you invested in you need to know what finds out next because when the reveal came I mean I texted you I think I put holy shit or something <laughs> on, on my text because it, it were massive like when the you know yeah. when the reveal comes he's done something like horrific um but for this was interesting I think because for me it came out of nowhere and then when you got to it you said you knew <laughs> so I thought yeah. that was really interesting that you'd worked it out well, I think it's, I'm trying to do this without spoilers. What, <laughs> there, there's not many ways you could compare Spill, Summer, Fall to Wither with Hurricane Season, um, as you'll discover when we get to talk to Hurricane Season, although there are animals. Um, but <laughs> it, there, is, there is one, there is a reveal in both books, which actually ultimately ends up being broadly the same thing. So I went very different, very different circumstances. Um, I went directly from finishing Hurricane Season to picking up Spill Simmer. Um, and so when something was said quite near the beginning of the book, um, or rather not said, actually, this is really hard to do without spoilers. <laughs> there was something not said quite near the beginning of the book um, where I was just like, oh, see if it's that again. And lo and behold, it was that again. And I think but from that point, I was kind of looking for it mm. because it was it was just in my head as it having been the reveal in the last in the last novel I'd read. Um, so, I mean, if someone has read Hurricane Season and hasn't read Spill Simmer, I have just spoiled it for you. I do apologise, but I'm not saying it. I'm not saying explicitly. 
on the podcast. Um, but yeah, no, it, it is that lack of tension. Mm. And also having read it immediately after having read Hurricane Season, which I will segue into, there's a bit of tension in that one. <laughs> Just a little. Bloody hell. We need to do, I think we need to, need to put in a content note at this point for like. Right, content everything. warning, everything. <laughs> Including bestiality. Child abuse. Sexual abuse. Oh, homophobia. Miscarriage. Violence. Murder. People being tied to hospital beds, racism, I mean, drugs. Everything. Just, just like the worst things that you can imagine. It's in here. Yeah. So that's There's your content warning. Yeah. Literally everything. Um, so uh, Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melkor, which is translated by Sophie Hughes, published by Fitzcarraldo. Are soon to be sponsors, not really. <laughs> um, anyone else to that? Uh, published in 2017 originally and uh, translated in 2020. Um, this is quite an extraordinary book, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's it's one that I felt somewhat conflicted about, but not because of its quality. It's an outstandingly written book. It's um, it is absolutely brilliant. Uh, for me, it was some of the content just got a little too little too much for me on Saturday afternoon, like sitting in my garden. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> but it is about so it is about a um, sort of village in Mexico called La Matosa, where there is a local person um, called the witch. Um, the witch is dead. The witch has been murdered. Uh, she has just been discovered uh, decomposing in an irrigation canal and then we go in each chapter basically you see from different people's perspectives what has happened and gradually throughout the novel layers upon layers upon layers are revealed to eventually find out the precise circumstances of the witch's murder. Uh, which makes it sound quite straightforward, but it isn't really, is it? <laughs> there's nothing straightforward about it at all because there's, there's stru- I wasn't going to talk about structure first, but seeing as you, you said that, the structure's cyclical within each chapter. So it, like you said, it, it builds and builds and builds. And it was one of the things that I loved about it. I thought the writing in terms of this was incredible. But like a chapter will begin at a point and you're not quite sure, you know, what that thing is that they're talking about. And then it goes round... <laughs> And you find out all these things and it comes back to where the chapter started. And then when you go to the next chapter, it fills in gaps. So it's almost like if I was going to draw it, actually, I would, if I was going to draw a, a picture of the structure, I would draw it like the inside of a tournament. <laughs> actually, but it, yeah. it's, it's like, yeah, probably go from the outside in, actually. You start with this kind of big picture. Oh, well, maybe you don't. You start with a big, no, you start with a small bit and it like, grows as you get more information that is really badly described on a podcast but <laughs> i'll draw a diagram <laughs> and put it on twitter um <laughs> added content bonus content yes but which like makes it sound well, well we've gone from making it sound simple to make it sound complicated and it wasn't because things just drop into place i found that i was never confused about who they were talking about which character and i think that's probably because each chapter focuses on one person with the other people sort of 
in the background or wherever they're required to be at that point. So yeah, so it builds upon those layers of who people are and what relation they are to each other and to the witch and to what happens. And yeah, I've, I actually, <laughs> I was hesitating to say this, I don't have any reservations about the content. There were a couple of bits where I winced. And I think it's partly to do with the fact that like, I'm, uh, fiction doesn't bother me as much, even though I know that like all of this has probably happened somewhere. It didn't bother me. And I think this is partly to do with the fact that I was a secondary school teacher for such a long time. I have heard all like, you know, loads of these stories with kids that I worked with. And that is far more upsetting than reading it in a book. I think it's probably, yeah. that that's the only the explanation I can come up with because it doesn't see, and we talked about American Psycho, which you said you didn't finish. And American Psycho is one of my favorite books. So I apparently I'm just nails cursing. <laughs> Well, yeah, do you know what? I I don't quite know why I reacted quite as viscerally to this because it it for me it wasn't the fact there's a lot of violence in this book. It wasn't the violence that I reacted to at all. It was almost specifically Norma's chapter. Yeah. Um Norma is a 13-year-old girl who has become pregnant, uh, and it's revealed that it's she's pregnant by her stepfather who's been sexually abusing her for quite a long time um and she sort of she, she basically kind of gets together with this other sort of teenage boy character in the book who has his own his own stuff going on which is another chapter which I won't sort of get into uh, but he is sort of naive enough to think that the baby is his even though she's several months gone and they've only been together for three weeks um and uh, Norma and uh, the boy's mum, who is a sex worker, they go to the witch essentially for a potion, a um, kind of concoction that will induce an abortion. Um, and it goes, it goes quite badly wrong. She ends up in hospital. Uh, but you know, it was, it was the chapter that she narrated where she's talking about that. She's talking about the grooming and sexual abuse by her stepfather she's talking about how she knows that her mother will blame her if she ever finds out that she is this kind of internalized misogyny of kind of going well I know I've caused it I know this is my fault um when of course she's a 13 year old girl and she's taking it all upon herself and it's it's that thing of making her sexually aware very early um which is why she's quite forthright in the in the relationship with the other boy you know she's very much the kind mm. of driving the driving factor and that of course is it's it's explicitly born out of abuse because she thinks that's how you behave with men um and i just found it completely heartbreaking just utterly it is much her kind of taking it on herself and, t and blaming herself but just seeing that behavior being carried forward because that's how she believes you behave with men mm -hmm. um i just i just found incredibly difficult to read um it and i was i was thinking you know why is it that i've reacted so strongly because i as we all know i adore <laughs> mariana enriquez which has got lots of 
violence and darkness in it you know Hot Fight by Maria Fernanda Ampero which uh, you talked about actually um, a few episodes ago that I've also read which is also a lot Um, so I don't it's not that I think that this book is more explicit than those books I think it was just the depths of the sadness and just those cycles and just the kind of relentlessness the relentless awfulness of it more than the violence itself do you see what do you know what I mean and I don't know if I if I'd read it on a different day maybe just on Saturday I just I was feeling like I was feeling particularly sensitive I don't know if I'd read it on a different day whether I wouldn't have been quite so because normally I don't react so much to stuff now I think I don't know whether you're skirting this on purpose, but I'm going to go there. <laughs> or whether you've just blocked it out because it's that traumatic. Because what happens in that chapter, and it is really difficult to read, but I think Melko's doing something really clever here, is that she's being abused by her stepfather who's 29 when she's 12. But also she is at an age of sexual awakening and yeah. she talks about how much she's enjoying it and how yeah. much she likes the way it feels like you know in terms of her body because she's getting used to her body and for me what Melko was trying to do there I think was pointing out that we don't talk to girls about their bodies and sex and what feels good and what's right and all those sorts of things and then then because she's been abused she she thinks it's good but also that and then she internalizes like you said there's a bit where she says well I kissed him first and you're like he's 29 and you're 12 no <laughs> and also that she thinks her mum's going to throw her out and it's that yeah I, th- I think she's linking the two things together about what society yeah. does in terms of the way um women's sexuality and also she does it later on with um Brando who's gay but can't come out as gay because the, the place is so homophobic and his so-called friends are so homophobic and he's really in love with one of the other characters there's this like beautiful scene where they wake up in, in fact He's in love with Norma's husband. <laughs> and there's there's a point like husband, I'm putting that in air quotes, because they're both kids. Um, and I mean, when he takes her to the hospital, they say they, like, they can't be married, she's only 13, what are you talking about? Um, but yeah, there's this beautiful scene where they wake up together, where they've like spent the night together. And and then he doesn't know what to do. He thinks, you know, he says, I'm gonna fucking kill him because what if everybody finds out? That, that this is what we've done but he's like he's madly in love with him and he can't explore his sexuality because in that society and in our society still to like a point quite a long point probably for for teenagers that it's just not something you do or something you talk about and so consequences are that behind closed doors all these horrible vile things are happening because that's not you know allowed or disgust, or you know, or is yeah. And the only time that like Norma makes a proper connection with um, her husband's mum, the sex worker Chabella, I think because Chabella is so open, and because she's yeah. about you know, she says that her son's a waste of space, which is another conversation about all the men in the book being a waste of space. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she says that, and she you know she goes out and works as a sex worker because she understands what power it gives her and that she has her own freedom that way. And, and that 
like, uh, you know, it seems to be in the book the only way that that's really explored. And it's like, the, we haven't mentioned yet that the witch is a trans woman, mm. and, which is really interesting. We need to talk about the pronouns um, in a bit because she does something interesting with that as well. But I hadn't worked out for most, it took quite a lot of the book, I think. It might even have been Brando's chapter before I realised that the witch was trans. And, um, and it's in the witch's house where like all the debauchery takes place, it's where the drugs are and where the gay sex happens. And so all the things that can't be done and talked about in the town happen in that house. And yeah, again, behind locked doors. And that's why they murder the witch, isn't it? Really, is because they, you know, they don't want the stories to get out about who they actually are. Yeah, absolutely. So they make up stories about who she is. Yeah. As a, as a kind of, protective I suppose protective kind of force field around them in a way and what you know what happens in the witch's house stays in the witch's house you know except when it doesn't um which is ultimately how the witch ends up being killed yeah um yeah. and but as you say the pronouns are really interesting because it is gradually revealed um that the witch is a trans woman and throughout the book, there is a lot of really offensive language, by which I mean homophobic slurs, there is racism, there is misogynistic slurs, like slurs for everything you can basically think of, and none of it is censored. But at no point is the witch misgendered. They, they, they talk about her in terms of kind of homophobic slurs. Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting choice. Mm. And and I haven't, I haven't got an answer. I don't know why Melkor did it. I'm also wondering about as well, because she arrives as a girl. She's a trans girl at, at the beginning because there's an old witch who, like, she just yeah, turns up one day. She, yeah. So she just turns up one day in the house, which reminded me a lot of um, things like um, oh, Niven Govenden's book and um, hers, the... Um, TV series and that whole um, queer people taking other queer people in and supporting mm. them because and it reminded me of that I mean it, it never goes into that in any sort of detail because the witch the old witch and the younger witch never get to speak you don't see anything from their kind of point of view um, but it did remind me of that like queer communities coming together not that there's any suggestion that there's well you don't learn anything about the older witch really but obviously she took this trans girl in for a reason. And I think partly because like to them, she's always been a girl. I think that was, yeah. that was possibly part of it. Um, and also, yeah, so they've grown up with it. Also, they're not afraid, the bit I worked out she was trans was when they're not afraid to use homophobic slurs though. <laughs> yeah. But I, that, that felt to me very much like it was internalized. There's, there's a really bizarre thing going on in their group whereby i mean brando is like really blatantly just gay and and they all like I, you get the sense that they all know it but also then so they, they give him a load of grief about being with women and girls and then, but then when he says that he's not going with them to like down into the town um to hang out in the gay bars <laughs> they go why are you not coming why why are you not coming to get your cocks up that's what we do it's like it's really like it's really gaslighting isn't it because they're yeah. just like and and they obviously just can't deal with who they are 
and within the society that they're part of no no and it's it's those cycles that we've talked about in other episodes mm. about other books it's it's seeing those cycles perpetuate once again isn't it it's the the older characters in the book all it's there's a lot of toxic masculinity we've got a grandmother whose grandson is a waste of space mm. and she protects him at all costs the same way that she protected his father at all costs when all the women know that they're a complete you know waste of space and in fact it's her granddaughter who um sort of dobs him in later in the book um there's well Chabella who while she's great you know her husband who has his own chapter which is one of my favorite chapters I just because <laughs> I thought like the structure of it was just so clever it was you know he's in a police interview and you're sort of kind of zooming in and out of you know he'll be telling the story and then it's kind of good and then the witness said you know you kind of come back into that mm. but he's he's useless her son's useless you've got all these inc- inc- extraordinarily kind of toxic male characters of all ages and the women are all incredibly put upon um you know they have to put up with so much and I mean Chabella as we say is the only one that's really kind of carved something out of it and even then you know she's you know well aware of how useless her husband and son are but don't really doesn't do anything about you know Mm. it's kind of like oh well (laughs) what are you gonna do (laughs) um but yeah it's there's there's so much of that and it's it's intergenerational it's it just keeps going i think that's kind of in a way in a way what i found difficult about it it was profoundly depressing <laughs> in places <laughs> that said you know we were talking before like the ending is does have a kind of oddly optimistic note doesn't it Sort of. I think it's a bit like it's half optimistic. Half... Yeah, well, in the sense that, so the end, there's this bit at the end, actually, that I wanted to read. I'm just going to, I am going to read it, but I am just going to warn people before I do that it's it's a bit grim. And so you might want to forward a minute. But they're talking about um, the place in general, so the wider area, because this is told from the perspective of the guy who's going to bury the bodies. And there are multiple bodies by this point (laughs) they say the place is hot that it won't be long before they're sending the marines to restore order in the region they say the heat's driven the locals crazy that it's not normal may and not a single drop of rain and that the hurricane season's coming hard that it must be bad vibes jinxes causing all that bleakness decapitated bodies maimed bodies rolled up bagged up bodies dumped on the roadside or in hastily dug graves on the outskirts of town men killed in shootouts and car crashes and revenge killings between rival clans Rapes, suicides, crimes of passions, as the journalists call them. Like that 12-year-old kid who killed his girlfriend in a jealous rage on discovering that she was pregnant with his father's baby down in San Pedro, Potrillo. Or the farmer who shot his son when they were out hunting and told the police he'd mistaken him for a badger, even though everyone knew the father had his eyes on the son's wife. He'd even been creeping around with her behind the kid's back. Or that head case from Palo Goethe, who said, the one who said her children weren't her children, that they were vampires out to suck her blood, which is why she bashed those kiddies to death with planks of wood that she wrenched from the table and with the wardrobe doors and even the television sets. 
Oh, that other miserable bitch who suffocated her little girl, jealous of all the attention the husband gave her, so she just took a blanket and held it over the girl's face until she stopped breathing. All those bastards from Mata de Pizza who raped and killed four waitresses and whom the judge let off because the witness never showed, the one who'd accused them. They say he was bumped off for being a grass and those cunts are still out there like nothing ever happened. So you get this like wider sense that like everything is awful. And then when it ends, the hurricane's about to come, so it's going to wash everything away. So there is this sort of sense of freshness that everything's that everything's going to go. But then it finishes with, see there, see that light shining in the darkness, the little light that looks like a star. That's where you're headed, he told them. That's the way out of this hole. And I kind of felt like, does he mean death? Is that they're like, you're heading off to, you know the lights that you see at the end of the tunnel when you die or, you know, something in space or, so there was, it's kind of that, she's done that clever thing where you've got like, there's a sense of optimism, but it comes with a big dose of darkness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, I think it speaks volumes that that probably is the lightest part of the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, right from the beginning. I mean, it opens with a, you know, decomposing corpse and and doesn't get much brighter than that really um so yes i mean it's grim but it is there's the cat it is the sort of most optimistic kind of we're all heading for the light eventually mm. um but yeah I, I think it's just the most extraordinarily clever book and i i don't i don't wish to say that just because i found parts of it incredibly difficult to read that i don't think it's brilliant I mean, her writing is extraordinary. The structure is so intricate in places, but just falls together so naturally. The writing itself, the writing style is very frenetic. It's very stream of consciousness in a way. It's, you know, you can go a long time without any punctuation <laughs> um, or certainly any full stops. It's it's very spoken. It's very verbal. It's, it is people telling their stories. Um, and I I'm not surprised that it's, Going to been up for all sorts of awards i think it's i think it's a superb book but not an easy one to read it's not i think two things for me one sophie hughes has done an incredible job on the translation i think mm. i mean it must have been a challenge to translate i think it, it reminded me a lot of i don't know if you've read it and i don't know if i can say her name correctly because i learned recently that i've been mispronouncing it for ages so vision virginia Depois, which is like written dispenses if you like doing it phonetically in english um which i learned after i asked for the wrong thing in waterstones um <laughs> it reminded me a lot of her work and that kind of ferociousness and I know she's translated by Frank Quinn and he's talked a lot about how like interesting it is to translate especially because she writes quite a lot in, in a dialect and so it's the which words do you pick out you know what how do they translate into English so I think there's probably been quite a lot of that I, I want to go now actually and, and listen to some of the stuff that I know Sophie Hughes has done quite a lot of events um around it as well so I kind of want to go in and find more out <laughs> And I did go, I don't do this very often, but I did go um, looking at reviews and M. John Harrison um, reviewed it for The Guardian. And he was saying as well how challenging it is, but he's glad it exists and that he'd read it. And and I very much feel like that. And actually I want to reread it because mm. I think 
there's so much in there. I, I'm part of me, part of partly from a writer's point of view, I want to work out how she did what she did with the structure, but also just I think there's there's so many interesting things in it, and I read it quite quickly because it's written in a style that lends itself to reading quite quickly. So yeah, which is another reason that I want to go back and kind of read it a bit more slowly. I think and yeah, see see what else is in there that I've, I might have missed. Yeah, I mean, I, I will absolutely read more of her work as it comes out. Like mm -hmm. it's, I, I definitely, <laughs> it sounds it sounds odd. So I don't mean I don't mean it as a negative. Um, I think it's probably testament to the um, vividness of her writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that you know, I I I found some of it incredibly difficult to read. Um, but I'm really glad I've read it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's superb. I really do. I can understand why people, some people didn't like it, but yeah, I think it's brilliant. And actually, I suppose I'm an, <laughs> after I said about Spill Simmer that I don't know why women wanted to write about it. Now this isn't, this is, this, I suppose it's balanced in terms of whose perspective it's from. It's kind of 50-50. But also, um, yeah, I, you know, there's that whole thing about women and what, you, there's always somebody coming up with like moralistic things about what women should be allowed to write or you know people being relatable or likable or whatever so actually I'm really glad that books like this exist that women are writing them that they're being published that you know they're there and yeah it feels like a step forward yeah well I think the, the, the one of the big differences between this and Spill Summer is I mean Spill Summer basically doesn't have any women in mm. You know, there's no, they're there very fleetingly. I mean, the, the part of the point is that he doesn't know even his mother's name until right at the end of the book. Um, and I, I did sort of feel the absence um, in, in the reading, whereas, yes, yeah, she's in some of the chapters, she's speaking from a male perspective. She's writing from a male perspective, but there's certainly not a lack of women. Mm. Um, and although there's a lot of misogyny, and internalized misogyny it, it, it's not necessarily true that all of those women don't have agency you know they yeah. lot Chad Bella particularly has agency but Norma has agency that's that's one of the uncomfortable things about it you know that's that's what makes it so difficult to read she uses her agency in a way that feels icky as hell <laughs> yeah 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 there we go what are we reading next yeah. week Kirsty what a note to end on. Um, <laughs> I thought it was perfect. Yeah, no, it is. It is. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, we are reading some books. We <laughs> are reading um, Wow, No Thank You by Samantha Irby. Uh, I love Samantha Irby. I, Me too. I'm really looking forward to us talking about her. Um, and we are also reading Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud by... Anne Helen Peterson. So two collections of essays uh, by American writers that cover pop culture and life and stuff and women and stuff. <laughs> um, and if that doesn't sell it to you, I don't know what will. I'm really looking forward to it. And if and if there are people listening who don't know who Samantha Irby is, then, then you need to come back next week for that because she's just amazing. Um, yes. In the meantime, 
Uh, one, check out Samantha Irby if you haven't come across her. <laughs> and two, you can uh, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts or you can follow us on Twitter where we chat nonsense. Um, <laughs> I am at Naomi Frisbee and Kirsty is at the other Kirsty. Otherwise, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.